something that we need to carry with us most of the time. But we're going to something that I think you need your Bible in your hand on. Uh, several years ago, I taught a series here on Wednesday night on Revelation. I did not spend much time on the first three chapters of Revelation. Revelation is a, is a unique book, unique in the system as far as the entire Bible is concerned. It's the only book I know of that has three different styles of writing. It begins with the epistle type of writing, like Paul begins his epistles, and uh, all of those, and it begins that way, talking to individuals, talking to you and I and to the people of the seven churches of Asia at that particular time that he's told to write to. He wants them to find this out, and he wants us to find it out, and he begins with that way and telling us some of the blessings that are ours as a result. And I think the opening words, the first five words of the book of Revelation, you'll see them on the screen, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the theme. That's what this book's all about. That's what we're going to be studying in this particular one. We're just going to be looking at the first book, first chapter of this book tonight. But I want you to understand that the revelation is important. That limits the scope of the book. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice something about that. I think it's very important that we very carefully look at it. It is not the revelation of John. If you have an, a regular King James Version of the Bible, the old King James Version, You'll notice above the book of Revelation, it says the revelation of John divine, the divine. No, it isn't. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation that he's made available. The word revelation is interesting as well. Actually, it means the uncovering. The making known, taking away the cover so everyone can see. And what we're going to find out in the book of Revelation is that this was not the revelation by Jesus Christ. It was not the revelation for Jesus Christ. It was the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to stop and remember. When we get through thinking about this, this particular thing is just about like Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. If you remember reading Matthew, the first chapter of Matthew, it's really the genealogy of Jesus. And Matthew begins by saying the generation of Jesus Christ. Well, what are you talking about, Matthew? I'm talking about all of the generations that produced for us Jesus Christ. When we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, what are we talking about? What Jesus has done. We could go back from the very beginning of time, and we'll be looking at that from various areas tonight. 
But when we look at that, we need to understand that we're going to be told what Jesus actually accomplished for us here. We're not talking about what's going to happen 2,000 years later on from John's writing. We're not going to be talking about what's going to happen sometime in the future as a great uh, uh, tribulation and things of this nature. We're talking about what Jesus did. We're talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's only one revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all that's needed. In other words, the cover's taken off of Jesus Christ and we can learn what he did. Think for a moment. If we go back to the Old Testament, and think of all the, the times in which Jesus was prophesied was not prophesied in a way that everybody could see at that particular time. They had to be able to understand what the prophet was saying and picture those, those words and understand. Now that cover's been taken off and we can see what they prophesied and what Jesus had, has done. It reveals him. Whatever the, whatever the message was, whatever the, the idea was, I want you to understand that there is a... This thing works a lot better when I turn it on. You know that? I, I think you can see two thoughts that are important. I think you can see what, what, we've been, what we're discussing here. It's, a, it, it's two basic thoughts in mind when we study the book. First is the subject, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We need to keep that in our mind. I don't care whether we're studying just chapter 1 or whether we're talking about some of the chapters later on. We'll be referring to some of those as we go through this particular study as well. But we need to recognize it's that. And then secondly, we need to know it, that it is the, the, not only the revelation of Jesus Christ, but is presented in a way that's meaningful to first New Testament Christians. That's interesting. We're not, we're, we're not used to this second style of writing that's used in the book of Revelation, which is apocalyptic. We're not used to that kind of writing. In the first century, in the early centuries prior to that, it was very much in, in use. People uh, would use apocalyptic. That is, that is a, a, a using symbols to tell a story. Sometimes I have difficulty with it. I have difficulty picturing what's in mind, what, what, what's the writer trying to say with all of these symbols and all these figures and all these pictures that he's using. How can we get that in mind? How can we understand that? In the first century, they probably understood it better than we can, and we, they understood exactly what we were talking about. But we see those two things that are greatly important impressed upon us. But here's, the, here's what must be revealed of him. Here's what we must take. We must see it as he was purposed. I think we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when uh, the writer is talking about the creation, talking about the creation of Adam and Eve especially. Let us make man after our image and in our own likeness. 
That was what they were saying. Who, who's the us? Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. We want to recognize that when we understand the purpose, why was the, what was the purpose of Jesus? To provide for mankind a means of salvation. God knew in the creation, when he created Adam and Eve, when he placed that, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, he knew that there was a good opportunity for them to commit sin. But he created man to have a choice. He, he didn't create robots. He created individuals who could choose right or wrong. But he probably knew man was going to, somewhere along the way, is going to choose what's wrong. You've done that. We've all done that. Sometimes not intentionally, sometimes intentionally. But we've done what's wrong. But we need, in order to be saved, in order to know what God really wants of us, in order to be able to participate, because God really is setting us apart for His service, we need to know that there is a way, that Jesus came to provide that way for us, and that as He was purposed, and we can even go further and say that it was as He was promised. You know, the prophets in the Old Testament promised from the very beginning of that time in Genesis on down that there would be a Savior, that there would be someone come who would provide salvation for mankind, and that's Jesus. Jesus, we're told in Galatians 3 and verse 16, when the, when the period of time had come, when the time was fulfilled, Jesus came. That's the, that's the thing that we're talking about, a planned coming. Jesus came for that purpose. Jesus was also prophesied as far as his coming. Throughout the Old Testament, there are numbers and numbers of prophecies concerning Jesus from the place of his birth, when he was going to be born, uh, when, uh, where he's going to be born. We might argue, uh, you know, on the side about when, we don't even know for sure what year it was. We think we do, and our calendar says uh, of a certain time, but when we think about it, uh, Herod did not live until the first century. Herod happened to die about four to five years B.C. Was Jesus born back, uh, back then? Probably so. We don't know for sure. We have no idea what month or what season of the year was he, he was born. We can't, we're not told that. Man has, has invented the idea that he was born on December 25th. Probably not likely. The shepherds were in the field, sleeping in the field with their flocks by night. December 25 in that area is, is a cold time of year. Probably wouldn't be sleeping in, out in the field. Probably bring the flocks into the, to the uh, point where they could keep them. 
but that's, that, that's not the important thing. The important thing is we have all of those things outlaid for us in the prophets and with the prophecies they've made. He was foreshadowed by members of those, by members of the prophets that, that did that. Some of them we can look back for and we can think they were certainly powerful individuals doing uh, some uh, miracles at that particular time, some things similar to what Jesus did, foreshadowing what he was going to do. We can see that. And we can not only, only that, but we can see that, that he was foreshadowed and that he, as he comes to earth, we know that. We need to have that opened up for us. We're told in the scripture of his coming to the earth, but we're not told all of the details about it. Now we're told that he comes. We're told also that he ascended to the throne. I, I, I love to picture Acts chapter 1 when the apostles were looking at Jesus as he was taken up from among them and ascended into the clouds above. I can almost try to picture, envision what they saw and how they felt. Not only did he ascend to the throne, but he reigns now in heaven. Now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We know repeatedly throughout the New Testament that that's what he's doing now. Seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And that he reigns at that time. Now think about something else here in chapter 1 and verse 1. He, this was revealed so that the things which must, be, must shortly take place shall be seen. Now there are a lot of information that we may need about that. Things which must shortly take place some, there are some who hold that shortly means certainly. That rather than being a time specified, the certainty of the events is guaranteed. Those who hold the futurist idea of interpretation hold this particular view. It means quickly, it means shortly. The word that's translated there. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul wrote to young Timothy as Paul was in prison at that time, the last prison assignment of Paul. And he told Timothy, be diligent to come to me quickly. We know what, he, what he's saying, don't we? We can understand that. An example of this word that's translated from Revelation chapter 1 in the same sense. We see it again in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Or again in Acts 12 and verse 7. Arise quickly. Again in Acts 22 and verse 18. Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly. Romans 16 and verse 20. And the peace of God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. 
in Revelation 22 and verse 6, show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. He says that in the first verse. He says that in 22 and verse 6 in the last chapter as well. We're talking about the book of Revelation is going to be showing things that must shortly come to pass. He's, he's unveiling Jesus. He's showing what Jesus has accomplished for us. There's another, another sense here that I want to think about just a little bit. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. He signified it. it means to show by signs. You know, we may have been some time in a meeting of some kind where the uh, one who was directing the chairman of that meeting, one who was directing things going on, may say, okay, if you agree with this, let, let everybody that agrees raise your hand. You signify the same by raising your hand. Or you may remember uh, being at weddings and a preacher standing before that couple talking to them standing before him and says if they have determined in their own mind to marry, they may signify the same by joining right hands. That's signifying. That's what it means to signify something. Skull and the crossbones on your medicine bottle may signify the power of that medicine. And so we're introduced to the nature of this book. Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ through signs and symbols. Some of them hard for us to understand. We're living in a different time, but there's some of them that are difficult for us to really comprehend. It must be kept in mind if the truth of this book is going to be understood, if it's going to be known, we must understand that it's given through signs and symbols. The message comes not through a, a literal understanding of words, but through an interpretation of those symbols. I've often said it's God's picture book, and that's kind of how it's written. We sometimes can draw great lessons from a book that pictures for us things that we've never even thought about before. Revelation does that. We often look at times to things and, and misunderstand symbols. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, if you remember Peter is quoting from the Old Testament at that particular time, and he quotes the Old Testament prophet saying, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Three things he mentioned that we have difficulty understanding. Blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. What does he mean by that? Well, everyone to whom Peter was talking at this particular time, Jewish people, understood perfectly. You see, they knew that every Jew, when the, at the Day of Atonement, when the priest went into the holiest of holies, 
that he had to take with him in the Holy of Holies a basin of blood. He had to take with him a censer filled with fire. And he had to take with him a handful of incense, sweet incense, beaten finely to put in that fire. They knew that when he entered that veil into that, that uh, inner room, holy of holies, that he had to put that censer that was filled with fire on the mercy seat and then put the incense on the fire so that vapor filled the room lest he die. He was then to sprinkle blood on the four corners of the mercy seat for the atonement of the children of Israel's sins. Therefore, three symbols, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke, opened to the Jews and to their mind the story of Christ is our high priest. It's going to be earth, heaven, of the signs that are beginning it of blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. What did Jesus do? He went in and offered for us the sacrifice that's necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. He paid the price for our sins. We no, long, we no longer have to try to figure out some way that we can settle the deal with God because we sin. No, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for us. That was his atonement. That's what the atonement means. Now, I want you to notice the line through which this message came. It came, first of all, from God through to Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show the servant. Now, I'm sure Jesus knew all of these things, but they, in, in the fact of what Jesus was doing, he's going to show what the servants needed. He's going to make that part of it. Not only that, but we see that in addition to that, the Jesus then passed it on to an angel. God, to Christ, to an angel. Three different times. And then the angel presented that to John. And then John presented that to us today. I want you to think about that for a moment. Here's the whole Godhead that's involved in this particular thing right there. Involved in showing to us what Jesus accomplished on this earth. In making available to us the the plan of salvation, making available to us how we can find forgiveness of our sins and how we can be taken with Him in heaven. I believe that the passage that we read about, Revelation 1 and verse 1, should be understood as the uncovering of Jesus Christ as God said He would be. 
which Jesus Christ gave the Old Testament servants, telling them about things that must shortly come to pass. And now Jesus Christ is sending an angel to show John how all these things were fulfilled, and that John wrote the record of the Word of God and all that happened to Christ and of all the things that he saw. Now John identifies himself beginning in verse verse 5. In our current study, we're looking at the ways of identification. The less well-known a person is, the harder it is to get positive ID, isn't it? Famous people are easier to recognize. Christians received this letter, this identity, this apocalyptic message that we're reading at this time as as the revelation of Jesus Christ. They could possibly identify and positively identify this particular source of this message because Jesus is identifying the characteristics and those are all, are all over it. In this lesson, I, wanna, I want you to look at some identifying marks of Jesus who's called the faithful witness. To what exactly would Jesus be considered, why would he consider, be considered a faithful witness? First of all, from eternity. You see, there was, Jesus was in existence before creation. John says in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were created by him. Without him was not anything created that was created. Jesus was there. We're told also that he made all things. John told us that. Wasn't anything created that Jesus didn't create. We have to understand that. We have to understand that creation. We're clearly understanding that he has to be part of that. We have to make sure that we understand exactly that's the line through which that message came. I'm a little behind on that, aren't I? From God to Jesus, and he identifies him. Who is that grateful wisdom? Eternity and creation now. Maybe I'll catch up in a few moments. You can, you, you can follow along with me that way. Maybe catch up with me, what I'm doing. The scriptures tell us that he, he, he was there in the creation, that he created all things. God said, let us make man, as I mentioned a moment ago. Someone comparable to himself was there. God only is comparable to God. Have you ever thought about that? When we talk about the three of the Godhead, they're equal. Christ is like God. He's like the Father. The Holy Spirit's like God the Son and God the Father. We understand that. All things were made through Jesus and for Jesus. And then notice God's plan. Being eternal, Jesus witnessed 
and participated in events from creation through the fullness of time. We find him identifying himself while he was here in, in, in person, talking about the being there with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. With those times, he is the one that, that helped Moses in many things that Moses did. It, we can see that from the New Testament. He confirmed his pre, pre-existence in John chapter 8 and verse 58. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us the mission of Jesus was planned before time began. And then God, there's God's Word. Jesus was and is a witness to God's Word. John 8, 26. Verse 40 as well, in 17 verse 8, Jesus tells the source of the teachings that he delivered. It wasn't some man thought up thing. It was from God. And the conclusion that I want you to see is in addition to be a witness, he is also a faithful witness. He had a mission. He came and was faithful to perform that mission. We could uh, quote a a number of scriptures for that. His word is true. And he can save you and me. The question we have when we we really really think about something there is, uh, what are we going to do with that faithful witness? How are we going to treat him? What's What's the opportunity? I want you to notice verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads, and they who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Did you know, did it really sink in what he said? Did it really sink in what that passage says, blessed is he who reads and he who hears. If you hear the words of of the book of Revelation, you come away sometimes saying, I don't understand what's going on. You're blessed if you read it and if you hear it. But you know, it's rather interesting to me to notice a, a unique thing in the book of Revelation. Six times No, let me count them again. Seven times in the book of Revelation, you're blessed. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear. And then number two, there is another blessing there that tells us that we are blessed. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. You know, one of passage that I like to use when I'm preaching funerals, especially for those who are faithful members of the church. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. That's very important. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. Revelation chapter uh, 16 and verse 15 tells us that blessed is he that watches and keeps his garment. Being a Christian is not something we can just put on the side. It's not something we just 
did once when we were baptized, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. It's not that we're worrying about it. It's the fact that we need to understand that here is a blessing that's given to us if we're willing to watch and keep our garments clean. Stay away from sin. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Back in the first century when John wrote this, marriages were different than they are today. They had, at the time of the wedding, there may have been a, a selection, there may have been arrangements for a, a couple to get married. He had to go out and get uh, go to work and had to come back having enough to maintain a family, have a place to live, things of this nature. But when he came, I want you to know it says, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. One of the parables Jesus spoke was about the two young ladies who were watching for the bride and uh, bridegroom to come. One of them had brought plenty of oil for her lamp, but the other one had not. And, and, and it must have been along about midnight when, they, when the bridegroom came. They didn't have uh, cell phones where they could email or text or, or call and say, I'm running a little late. It, late. it must have been midnight when they came, and, and the one who did not bring oil was running low. She wanted the other one to give her some oil. She said, no, you'll have to go buy your own. She did. That's the reason. Now notice again, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? Have you participated in the first resurrection? I pray that all of you have. When we put our, our, our old man to death and are buried in the watery grave of baptism, we rise from that as our first resurrection. It's now that we have life with Christ. And then, then uh, again it says, Blessed is he who keeps the words of this, uh, the prophecy of this book. These are, are important words. We need to keep them. We need to understand them. Blessed are those who do His commandments. Seven blessings there. And we're going to see several times in which we have that word number seven. Let me just pause at this moment and give you the kind of meaning of that word. Word seven, to, to individuals back then, this world that we live in had four corners, you know. One, two, three, four corners. The Godhead is composed of three. You put the two together and you have the perfection. You have perfect number. Man is not perfect. His number six. In Revelation, we're going to see the number 666, the triple failure of man. That's what it's all about. It tells us what we can do. Now, I understand, too, 
that this word seven, number seven, means completeness. It's perfection. It's all done. That's why he said, sent the letters to seven churches. That all the churches in Asia, Southern Asia? No. We know of num- a number of others. John must have known a number of others. He lived uh, for about 20 years in, in uh, Ephesians, Ephesus. He must have known many, many people at that particular time in other congregations throughout. This, be, this is, is the representative of all churches for that, from that time to this time. And it's interesting to think about. These seven then that stand for churches of all time. The problems that were described there are problems that will exist in churches as long as human beings are the church. We can look round about us. As a group. As the body of Christ. I pray fervently that we are always doing what God wants us to do. So easy to slip up sometimes. We see individuals or congregations that are uh, doing various things that are not according to God's will. You see all the problems that are described, many of them that are described in the letters to the seven churches are problems that exist today. And all the thing, who is and who is to come, and all of this is from Jesus Christ, verse 5. Did you notice that? Verse 5. John says that he is the the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's who we're talking about. That's why, that's who penned, helped to pen this letter. If you notice, beginning back in, in verse 4, John to the seven churches of Asia, which are in Asia. Now, it's interesting to me to notice John wrote four other books in the New Testament. The Gospel of John, and then 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John. But do you realize something? John never put his name in any of those. But he did here in the the book of Revelation. He did from the very beginning of the first verse. He does it again in verse 4. He'll do it again later on in in this first chapter and several times he's going to mention that he, John, is the one who's doing the writing. The Lord told him uh, that he's to write these things. He's to make sure that he's going to write them down. Verse uh, 11 says, what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And he tells him in the latter part of this book, on over, I think it's in chapter 22, that you write these things down. Rather interesting to think about that. 
You'll not need someone to point it out to you. It's a, supposed to be a self-evident matter. Behold, he comes with the clouds. And every eye shall see him. Those who also pierced him will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I had a fellow come knocking on my door years ago. They started talking to me about Jesus, about the church, and talking to me about how that when Jesus comes, so many have already been caught up into heaven. As a matter of fact, he was teaching that heaven's full. 144,000 already gone. I said, wait just a minute. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. How can, how can what you're saying be and every eye shall see him? He said, I, 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 I've got to testify on down the road. I'll, be, I'll see you later. And he left. Seven times. We don't, need, we don't need someone to point out the fact that Jesus is coming again. He says in, in, in verse 11, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Alpha is the first letter of their Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter. Whether you're going from A to Z or from one on, doesn't make any difference. I'm the first and the last. What you, are, what you see, write it in a book. Send it to the seven churches of Asia. And then he mentions those seven ones that are picked out. Seven means completeness. These churches are representative of all the churches that Christ has established and all that are participants with him in those. Now it's interesting that John at this time, he tells us that he was on the Isle of Patmos. That he was writing this. I, John, verse 9, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. The Isle of Patmos is a small island not too far off the coast. It's the place where someone who, dominion, dominion is the emperor at that time. He's telling everybody that I am God, you'll have to bow down to me. And if they would not do so, most of them were sent to the Isle of Patmos as a prisoner. It was a, a rocky island and they were there to break up stones from that place all the time. They didn't have a place to stay. They didn't have a house. Some have suggested that John was there probably in the 90s, A.D. 90s, between 90 and 95, somewhere in that area. 
If you can picture that, you can understand John's an old man by this time. He was alive during Jesus' time back in A.D. 30, 30 to 33. At least that's what we think. It'd be 60 some odd years on down the road, so he's close to 90 years of age. He's the one apostle that Jesus promised would see a normal death. We're not told what, uh, sure, surely at that age, they wouldn't put him out working in the rocky hillsides at that time. Historians will tell you that he lived in a cave on that island, that he was there for about uh, 18 months. And then he came back was released from there. We don't know some of those details. We know John must have lived to that at ripe old age, but we can imagine him living in that, in that uh, uh, cave and understanding uh, what is going on. And he says here, rather interesting, that he was on the island called Patmos, on the word of God for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Do you realize this is only the second time in the pages of the Bible that this phrase Lord's day occurs? John referred to it that way. Usually it's either the first day of the week or the day of, uh, of worship or something of that nature. John refers to it as the Lord's day. He was in the spirit, he says. He was worshiping God. I hope and I pray that I can, when I'm in worship service, feel that I'm in the spirit. That I'm worshiping God as He's commanded me to do. That's my concentration. That's my ability to think what God wants me to think. We don't often do that. I don't know about you, but I have a tendency for my mind to wander from time to time. And I've got a feeling probably yours does too, that we begin thinking about something else. We know that there were churches in, in Troas and Colossae and Hierapolis and some of the others that, uh, places that, 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 you know, the writings of Ignatius some 20 years later includes Magnesia and Trales. He was in the midst of great trouble and tribulation, but still in communion with God. I want you to think about that. I want you to picture that in your own mind. Here he was by himself, isolated in an island, away from any kind of response that he might have, but he's worshiping God. He may have been put there because he worshiped God, but he is doing it there, making sure that he worships God. He's in the spirit on the Lord's day. 
being, being permanently at that time uh, prevented from assembling with saints, but he worshiped God as best he could. Now, I want you to see something. When John turned, he saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, this is different than the candlestick that was in the holy place. It had seven, seven candles on it. But it's different from that. It's different from that in that these were individual candlesticks. I, I, would, I would envision, you know, standing up high. Don't know that. But Jesus was standing in the midst of them. Now Jesus tells us that these candlesticks are the churches. He's going to identify that for us. Each candle is representing a church. And one way, when he write, uh, writes the letter, dictates the letter to John for the church at Ephesus, he picks out that candlestick and as if he were there. He's in the midst of the churches. That's the picture he wants us to have. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in the midst of them. Jesus was in the midst of the churches where individuals were worshiping him. It's interesting today that many are looking for Jesus everywhere but where he is. If you want to find Jesus, look for him in his, in his church. There's a, a description of him there that I want to just briefly mention. He's clothed in a floor-length garment bound by, by, around the breast by a golden binding. This was the clo clothing of royalty. Head and hair, both white as snow, white as wool. Daniel also saw something similar. His eyes were like a flame of fire. That would be, indicate something that's piercing, that's searching, something you're not going to hide anything from. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 pictures the same thing. His feet was like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and glowing. This shows not only the strength, but the consuming judgment. Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6, Ezekiel 1 and verse 7, Micah 4 and verse 13, <clears throat> the daughter of Zion was given bronze feet she, so she might pulverize many peoples. His strong commanding voice is like the roar of mighty waters. In his right hand of his ruling power are the stars as the angels of the seven churches. Why are these angels addressed in chapter 2 and 3? Why are they responsible for the sins of the congregation? Some consider them to be earthly messengers, uh, pastors, bishops, things of this nature. But that was an unknown concept in the first century. Some say they, they are the spirit of the congregation. But that uses figurative language to describe figurative language. When Jesus addresses the churches, he also orders all to hear. 
what the Spirit says to the churches. Out of his mouth proceeds that sharp two-edged sword. Remember the picture in, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12? That's what's going to happen in the future. We're going to recognize that that's taking place. And what they're, they're, but things are going to happen in the next vision. And there is a restatement of verse 11. We find that as the explanation of the stars. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We can see that as we understand it. Now I want to draw another lesson for you. I want you to go back to verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. If I had been in his place, if you had been in his place and you suddenly saw that image of Jesus standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, and pictured as he's described here, what would you do? John says, I fell at his feet. I fell there immediately as dead. I don't doubt that. But did you notice what Jesus said? Jesus said very carefully, do not be afraid. This is Jesus. The Bible throughout, throughout knows the Lord is the good shepherd. God knows what's going on. I want you to notice, just let me draw some things very rapidly to close here. And, and I, I think we need to recognize this. So it, uh, the word know often means much more than just a, an awareness of facts. It frequently represents a word that describes a relationship between the person's knowing and the object known. That which is known is of value and importance to the one who knows. The relationship that we're talking about here is between Jesus and his disciples. And that shines forth in every verse. The Lord knows when we're afraid. John saw Jesus in his glory and fell at his feet as a dead man. Verse 17. Paralyzed by fear, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. I wonder if that memory did stir in John when the Lord told him not to be afraid. A memory of going with him and two others to the top of the mountain a high mountain, and on that occasion John saw Jesus transfigured before him and Moses and Elijah with him. And he heard a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. When John looked again, all he saw was Jesus. This is my beloved Son 
I wonder if it stirred that kind of memory. I wonder if it was that was the idea when others fell on their faces and were very much afraid, according to Matthew 17 and verse 6. And verse 7, then Jesus touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. The Lord has often forgiven, uh, given men that message. He knows when we're afraid. And he knows what about us. He also knows how to comfort us. When he could comfort them, he knew that, was, he was, that John was immobilized by fear, by uncertainty, drained by pain and, and, and of what he's going through. He knows how to comfort us. He's able to come to their to, to come to those who uh, are tempted or tested, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. Jesus had come to John not to frighten him, but to encourage him. So he told him, do not be afraid. The word can soothe the soul. The prophet spoke of graciousness. The Lord comforts us today. And I want you to understand that. Whatever we're going through, whatever our problems are, Jesus is aware of it. He knows how to comfort you. Of all the way he comforts us, one of the most precious is his presence. David wrote, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Jesus promised us, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord knows what we need to hear. Jesus told John, do not be afraid. Spoke words that would dispel the apostles' fear. Those overwhelmed by the might of the Romans, Jesus said, I am the first and the last and the living one. They could, that served as a, as a reminder of his divine nature. Compared to Jesus, the Roman Empire was like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Facing martyrdom, martyrdom those to whom John spoke, Jesus said, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades, verse 18. Don't miss the significance of the word was. I was dead, but he is no longer dead. He is alive forevermore, and he controls them that have the power. I want you to know that, that well, we need to know Jesus. We need to know what he's saying. We need to know where he is. He knows us, knows us well. What a great message we have. Revelation chapter 1. I hope you'll study it. Hope you'll spend some time with it. We're just beginning there. The, the epistle type of this particular book continues through chapter 3. Seven letters to seven churches. Messages for us today too. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being able to watch on, online as well. It's been a great time to be able to spend time with you. Lord, you ask Ben to come and lead us in a word of prayer.
Our God and our eternal Father in heaven, we thank you for the day that you've blessed us with to live. We pray that we glorified your name through our thoughts, through our actions, and through the words that we said. And we pray that as we look at the revelation you showed to John, that uh, we'll be challenged by it, challenged by the great message that Jesus gave him. And we pray that as we look at the revelation of the rest of your word that has been revealed to man through the Holy Spirit, we pray that uh, we will apply it to our life and uh, cherish it and honor it and study it every day. Lord, we thank you so much for Brother Clower and the pillar that he is in the kingdom and the strength that he exhibits every time he speaks. We thank you so much for men like him who leave such an example and continue to show us that example as they leave such a great life. Uh, thank you so much for the elders of this congregation. We pray that they will shepherd us uh, in a way that pleases you with wisdom. And uh, we thank you so much for the ways that you've blessed us this year already with our go and do. We pray that uh, we'll continue to be successful and uh, fruitful and effective in those different ministries and outreach that we show to the community. Thank you most of all for Jesus Christ, and we pray that we'll keep his sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection at the forefront of our minds each and every day. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.